This is episode 13 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. All right. Good morning, everybody. This is Preston Pish, and I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson. And we've brought Hari Ramachandra back on the show because we are talking about something very interesting today, Google. Uh, for everybody out there, I'm sure they've used Google with their uh, search results, but picking apart and understanding what it is that makes Google tick is something that very few people understand. So today in our show, we're going to be talking about a book that all three of us have read, and the name of the book is In the Plex. Uh, this is a best-selling book, and this is by Stephen Levy, and uh, the subtitle of the book is that it talks about what Google thinks, works, and shapes our lives, and so that's what we're going to be discussing today as we kind of go through the essence of this book. So for today's uh, show, we are going to break this down into two different segments. The uh, first segment, we're going to discuss the book, and we're going to be really discussing what it is that makes Google tick. Uh, at the end of the show, we'll move into the second segment, and we're going to be talking about our thoughts on why or why not uh, we would own stock in Google. So we'll go around the horn and get everybody's opinion. So uh, let's go ahead and kick this off. We'll start off with the uh, very first point uh, when this book opens up. And I found it just absolutely fascinating the way that this book starts, because the author talks about what it is that Sergey Brin and Larry Page, who are the two founders of uh, Google, what their overall mission and goal is for Google. And that mission is that they want Google to be the brain of the world. And I think for a lot of people, they hear that and they're like, OK, so what in the world does that mean? And it's, it means exactly what I said is they are trying to take Google to be the hub or the brain of every thought that's ever been captured in the world that's been captured on the internet and harnessing that and, and providing that to people. So if you ever have any question whatsoever, that question can be immediately answered with your smartphone or your computer by just typing in whatever your question is. That's their goal. Uh, they want there to be no boundaries between language. So if you type something in and you want to know what that means in Korean or Russian or any language, you will get the answer no matter what. So that's a pretty lofty goal. That's something that I think a lot of people might think, wow, I didn't really necessarily realize that that's what they were trying to do with their little uh, uh, one page uh, entry point for the uh, search where you just type one thing in and it pops up. But that's really what they're trying to do is they're trying to harness every thought that's ever been captured in the world and making that accessible. So let's talk about how computers work and how Google works uh, in general. So whenever you think about data, and that's what this is, it's, it's stored data, you've got to realize that every piece of information, when you type something down on your keyboard and you save that uh, information on, let's just say, a Word document, that is a file, and that file sits on your computer. And so what the World Wide Web does is it, it links all these different computers together so that I can have access to maybe, say, something that Stig wrote over in Denmark, or let's say uh, Hari wrote something over in San Francisco and captured it on a Word document. Through the internet, I am able to link to that file. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the internet works a lot like our mail system. Our, our old-fashioned type up a letter, uh, put it in the mailbox, and send it off. So let's say that Hari types up a Word document, and he stores it on his computer in San Francisco, and I want to have access to that file through Dropbox, or he puts it on a web page or a web server or whatever, and I want to access that. So whenever he saves that document, it's saved on his computer at a particular IP address, and I'm sure a lot of people have heard IP address before. Okay, And what an IP address is, is it's no different than your physical address. So I have an address if somebody wants to send me a, a piece of mail or a box through the post office. And so that IP address is exactly like that mailing address. And so if I want to go get this file off of Hari's computer, I, if I know his IP address, I could access that particular file by going to his computer. And that's how all this is linked together. And so what Google does, and let's get back to the, our discussion on Google, what Google has done is it has mapped the entire world's computers where all this information is saved. 
Okay, and they've mapped it, they've indexed it so that they have this all saved on computers that they've had. It's basically like a backup, a copy of everything that's out there. And so they have these massive web servers, they have these massive supercomputers in these data centers around the world, and these computers are constantly looking at everything that's called crawling the web. They're crawling the web for all this information, and then they're making duplicate copies of this information on their computers in order to know what's out there in order to provide you the best search results. So how did Google really become and rise to the top as being one of the top search uh, results in order to find this information? Because if you think about that problem of trying to point somebody to the, to the information that you're seeking, that's a really hard and complex problem is everybody's typing up all this different information all over the world. So how do you point them to the, to the article that they're actually searching for? And how do you get it right almost every single time? And so how the founders of Google, which is Larry Page and Sergey Brin, did this is they thought about the problem from a different vantage point. Whenever search engines first came out, they were based off of uh, keyword density. So if let's say I was looking for an article on tennis, okay, um, if the article had the word tennis in it 5,000 times, that search result would would rise to the top and that'd be the uh, article that would be, you know, showed as the best result. Well, as many people uh, caught on to this, uh, they would hide the text in the document through the HTML and they would just type tennis about 5 billion times and then their article would naturally rise to the top. So that didn't work real well uh, because you had really kind of bad content that was search engine optimized and that's how it rose to the top. And so what the founders of Google did is they did it a little differently and they said, let's treat this like it's a research paper. And whenever you write a research paper in academia, which both of these students were out at Stanford University and working on their doctorate whenever they uh, founded uh, Google and they started off with a thing called PageRank, which was what Larry Page had called his first search engine. Um, the way that they framed it is they said, you know, whenever you find a really good research paper at the bottom of that research paper, it has all these works cited uh, references to other documents, to other you know professionals that have written about this. And so they said, well, if everybody's constantly linking or showing that the um, maybe this article by this professor over in uh, Harvard wrote the best article on tennis. Let's go back to that example. Um, if everybody's referencing this one document, that document that's being referenced is probably the best result and shows the most authority. And so they took this idea of referencing at the bottom of the page to a different level, and they started treating that as the link to the other person's content is a clue as to what is the most important piece of information to be found. So, Stig, go ahead, and I see you have a comment that you wanted to add. Yeah, so what's really important to understand is that Google wants to do its best to mimic the behavior of a real-life person. And clearly the problem is, if you want to map the whole world, you can't have a person or hundreds, a thousand people doing that. That's simply impossible. So what they're doing is that they are adapting the algorithm to act the most like a human being. And one way to do uh, that, as Preston is saying, is looking at how many people are referencing, uh, what we also call backlinking. So how many people are backlinking and saying that this page is relevant or this site is relevant for what you are searching for. A fantastic point on how their uh, algorithm works there, Stig. Um, so just a little background. So whenever Larry Page and Sergey uh, Brin founded the company at Stanford, they were just starting off and it was uh, really a research uh, project that they were doing. And so they were using the uh, servers and the computers at Stanford whenever they were doing it. And they started getting so much traffic coming to their site because their results were populating such good quality results that the servers there at Stanford started getting overused. They started buying more computers, and it just kind of evolved into this massive monster of uh, computing power. And I think that at that point, uh, it says in the book that they kind of realized that they had something fairly huge, and so <laughs> they ventured off. Uh, Hari, do you know how much... Um, didn't Stanford get some of the equity of Google whenever they decided to, you know, move outside of the campus of Stanford and, and found their own business? I can't remember in the book, but I thought I remember hearing like 10% or something like that. You're right, Preston, uh, around that number. In fact, uh, Stanford has a very good uh, incubator program. A lot of companies in the Silicon Valley have come out of Stanford, uh, including companies like Sun, Yahoo, and others. 
and uh, Stanford professors are um, known to have industry connections. And also many of them have founded their own companies as well. Yeah. Well, I'm, even the book, the uh, Peter Thiel book that we uh, did, the zero to one, and he was giving the lecture at Stanford. That's where the book <laughs> all came from. So, yeah, it definitely seems like there's a lot of Stanford alumni out in the uh, Silicon Valley. So, all right. So let me uh, continue. So um, when we're talking about Google, a lot of people have the question, how in the world do they make any kind of money? You know, when they when you show up on their homepage, you see that it's just one input. There's no advertisements. There's no nothing. And for a lot of people, they're like, how is that a billion dollar company? How are they making billions of dollars? And so they have a couple different engines that produce their revenue. So I'm going to talk about the first one that was in the book, and that is AdWords. So the way AdWords work is let's say that you have a business and you sell tennis rackets. Um, I'm on a tennis kick today, so that's why I keep referencing tennis. So uh, let's say you own a business and you want to sell tennis rackets. What you could do is you could open an account with AdWords, which is owned by Google, and you could say anybody who searches for buy tennis racket or tennis racket, or you list all these different keywords and you list them into your account. And you say, I'm willing to pay $1 for every person that clicks on my advertisement if Google places it wherever Google places it. And so you're in your bidding. So this isn't just like you have this one agreement with uh, with Google. There's other people that are bidding for those same keywords that are wanting to own uh, the search result, which will populate as an advertisement after you initiate your search. It'll populate there in the first position or it could populate on page five, depending on where you're willing to pay and where the bids fall. But it's one big giant auction and you're competing with other people that are wanting that same keyword. And so every time that somebody clicks on that link or it depends on if you're running advertisements per thousand or million or whatever, um, then those are the two different options. You can pay by click or you can pay per thousand advertisements. But uh, every time that somebody clicks on that, Google makes money and the person who uh, you know conducted the advertisement gets their, their benefit is that you drove somebody to your to your website. So AdWords was a major shift in search because um, as this started to develop, there was a lot of people that had concern over, well, is Google just providing me the the search result based off of who's paying me the most money or are they actually giving me the results that are showing me the the best uh, web page to land on? And so there was a lot of uh, discussion in the book about that, and it obviously raises some uh, concern over the conflict of interest that you might see by uh, running something like that. So, Hari, I saw you had a point that you wanted to add here. You're up, you brought up a good point, uh, Piston. Uh, in fact, um, if you are wondering how Google makes money, you are not alone. You're in good company. In fact, in the book, the author talks about a point in the early days of Google when the founders, Larry and Sergey Brin, were not really interested in starting their own company, rather wanted to sell it off, to and they approached many companies. In fact, um, most of them rejected their offer. And the, in the book, he talks about how the CEO of Excite, George Bell, rejected their offer to sell their technology, the search engine, for $700,000, because he didn't know how they would make money. He thought it's a clever project by two Stanford grads. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was hilarious at the beginning when they were talking in the book, they were talking about how they came up with this search engine, but everyone was like, I don't understand how you're ever going to make any kind of money on this. And now you look at their revenues and they're making $60 billion in revenue a, a year, whatever it is. It's just uh, quite funny. Uh, so, okay. So that was AdWords. So you're basically advertising off of keywords that you would want for your business to drive traffic to your site. Now, this is where I think uh, Google really had some genius in how they were going to raise money. So let's say that you own a website. So Stig and I, we have a website. Hari, you have a website and you want to run an advertisement on your website for maybe somebody else's business. Well, that's that's a lot of coordination for you. You know, if you had to first establish the uh, the coordination with the company that you would run the advertisement on, you have to get their permission. You got to you know set up the code in order to lead them to their site. You have to. It's really the code is quite complex because that person has to know that they actually came from your site. So there has to be code associated with that, um, and it's a it's a very big uh, process for a person to run an advertisement. Well, Google came out with this brilliant idea of. Hey, let's be that source. Let's just give somebody a, a source of code. They take that little snippet of code, they drop it into their website, and we'll do the advertising for you. We'll know what that person's looking for 
what it is that they want to buy, why they're maybe on your site, and we'll run relevant ads on your site. And every time somebody clicks on it, you as the owner of that website is going to make money. And so this was called Google AdSense. And so um, it's just an amazing tool for anybody that owns a website. You can just go to Google, sign up for an account. They'll give you a little snippet of code. You drop it into your website and boom, advertisements start showing up. And every time somebody clicks on that advertisement, you start making money. Um, Something that I found really interesting in the book was they had a, a big debate on how much Google should actually make from AdSense. Sergey Brin had the uh, opinion that they needed to not take too much money from the website owner because they didn't want to introduce a lot of competition into this field. Instead, they wanted to own this field. They didn't want anybody else out there to be able to do it. And this is a common theme that we've seen with people like Sam Walton, uh, Jeff Bezos, where their opinion is, let's not take too big of a margin here. Let's own the space. Let's just dominate this space. And that way, we'll never bring on competitors because if there's large margins, competitors will flock to that uh, type of line of business. And so just something very interesting for, uh, you know, as I was reading in the book and saw that. So uh, as we progress forward and we kind of look at how Google grew, um, one of the things that I found just totally fascinating was the size of these data centers that they were building um, all around the world in order to service all their different customers that were conducting searches. One of the things that Larry Page was just really big on, and they have some really quite funny examples in the book, is the speed and how fast he wanted these servers in order to produce results and to load onto people's computers. So much so that uh, he'd have people come into his office and like bring up certain topics and he would be able to say, hey, that happened in half a second or 0.6 seconds or something like that, where he was timing people and they, people would go back and say, they'd, they'd reload the page that they were showing him in the office. And sure enough, like he was down to like the 10th of a second on the, uh, on his estimation of how fast different pages were loading and people were just like flabbergasted that he could predict and see that. Uh, that just showed people how important that aspect of the business was to him. And so building these big data centers, building these uh, these computers that could capture all this information and uh, harvest all that information uh, was just quite fascinating and, and very interesting to know. So Hari, you had a point that you wanted to add here? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They're one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Yeah, Preston. So uh, one of the things that a lot of us underestimate is how much of technology and infrastructure is needed to serve these search results. You just see a blank page with Google logo on it and you think, hey, what's so complicated about it? 
In fact, uh, it's not just the algorithms, but the infrastructure that supports it is huge. In fact, in the book, uh, the author talks about uh, Google having about 24 data centers in 2009. I'm sure it will be much more now. And each one of them costing a billion dollars. He has uh, also a vivid description of one of those data centers, which is the size of two football fields and has about 200,000 square feet of space for servers and other infrastructure and a four-storied 18,000 probably square feet facility for the cooling tower. I mean, that's humongous. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I found it really interesting too, all the different things that they were talking about you know, to cool all these all these uh, computers and all this processing power, they've got to you know cool it. And so they're talking about putting them up in Alaska to Antarctica to having them out on ships and running uh, seawater over top of things in order to constantly cool them and and doing it at a really cheap price. There, I know that there's a lot of data centers that are underground in order to uh, you know help dissipate the heat. It's just it's just amazing um, the technology and stuff that's happening. Go ahead, Ahari. You had a second point. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, most of us underestimate is the energy consumed by these data centers. When we talk about uh, stuff going online, we're not buying uh, books anymore. We think uh, we are doing good for the environment because uh, we are consuming less energy. However, data shows that 1.2% of all the electricity consumed in the United States today is by the data centers. To put that in the context, it's more than 20 states in U.S. in terms of you know energy consumption. So we have to really think hard about the impact of these data centers on environment. And that's why energy efficiency for Google, not only from an economic, but even from an environment perspective, is very important. Hey, one of the uh, points I wanted to bring up was just this contrarianism that we've read up about in so many of these other books. I mean, almost every book we read, it's talking about how the billionaire has this uh, just drive to, to always question or counter whatever it is that uh, the common knowledge is. And so uh, Larry Page really kind of struck me as that person for Google and that he is just constantly trying to think beyond what most people would expect or think is normal. One of the funniest things I found in the book, they were talking about how Larry Page and Sergey Brin went over to the UK and were having uh, dinner with the royal family. And um, they brought out this, uh, and this is really, really off topic, but it was so funny. I, I can't help but bring it up. And so when they were there having uh, dinner with the royal family, they brought out what looked like a little shot of uh, a sauce that they would put on top of their souffle that they had made for them. And so they were sitting there with the, the, the Queen of England and they're having this dinner. And so both Sergey Brin and Larry Page took this sauce, which they were supposed to pour over top of their souffle, and they just drank it and they just pounded it like it was a shot of tequila or something like that. And I guess the royal family kind of looked over at them like they were crazy. And they were like, you know, as politely as they could say, they were like, um, you were supposed to pour that over your food, over the over the souffle. You were not supposed to drink that, you know. And their response, Larry Page's response was, who says? And I just, I found that absolutely hilarious to the point where it's like, who are you to tell me what I'm going to pour my stuff over? If I want to drink it, I can drink it. You know, <laughs> it just shows you that's how these guys think. If somebody tells them it can't be done, they're going to do it and they're going to do it without even question or thought. And I just found that story to be so funny. Christian, that was a very interesting um, episode. Uh, in fact, I think throughout the book, the author has given a lot of instances which shows um, a complete ignorance of popular culture uh, among both these founders. And one of the things that uh, the author points to is their background. And uh, he talks about the Montessori education and how that has shaped the thinking of these two founders, both Larry Page and Sergey Brin. And it's interesting uh, because my son is now in a Montessori and I'm getting to know firsthand the philosophy behind Montessori system and how they encourage children to think for themselves. 
You know, that's a fantastic point. I think a lot of people might not even realize what that is. And so in our show notes, we'll have a good write-up of uh, what what Hari's referring to and something else that uh, Sergey had gone through with his education as a, as a young kid. Um, and just so everyone knows, Sergey Brin was 19 years old when he was at Stanford working on his doctorate when he founded Google. So just to kind of give you an idea of what we're dealing with here as far as intellect with some of these people. <laughs> Go ahead, Stig, you had something you wanted to say? Yeah, there was just another funny story uh, just to, to say something about the, the character. Because he was asked by his dad, like, shouldn't you take any advanced courses? Uh, you know, to uh, to improve your uh, yeah, your knowledge, and he was like, "Yeah, I'm considering advanced swimming." The end. <laughs> <laughs> All that, that father son relationship it's <laughs> it's prevalent in every person's uh, family. <laughs> All right, so let me just conclude this first segment. So uh, the uh, last thing that I wanted to talk about is just the analytics. So Google's at the point where they have all of this information. They've basically mapped the brain of the world, if you want to refer to it as that. And whenever you do something like that, you see the traffic patterns. You see where people are going. You know how long they sit on a site. You know how often they go to a site. You know exactly what they're searching for to the point where you go on to Google today and you start typing something. You might only have three letters typed into the search box and it already knows what you're looking for. Um, and so that's advantageous for a business because they can identify the next YouTube because they can see the traffic patterns. They can identify the next Google Earth because they can see the traffic patterns. And so whenever you're in that position of really knowing and, and having just information is what it is, just the flow of information, you are a completely you're, you're in a completely different realm than any other business out there. And so if they're able to continue to manage this um, and to continue to grow this business and, and manage their finances, because that's where they could potentially get themselves in trouble if their margins ever started to dissipate. But as long as they continue to track that flow of information and the analytics, I find them to be a very dangerous business moving forward. In the, and I mean dangerous in a, in a good way in their ability to grow and just be one of those top tier businesses for decades to come. I was really impressed by how data-driven Google is. And, and clearly, no one's probably surprised when I say it's data-driven. But after reading this book, I'm just so, so impressed uh, how they use it. So for instance, when talking about analytics, uh, one of the founders said, the more people know, the more people will buy. That was one of his, uh, his key arguments to, uh, to actually establishing Google Analytics. And Google also internally, they use this data to so many things. At one point in time in the book, it says that we don't have to argue. No one has to argue at our meetings. We just need to look at the data. And I thought that was just a good an analogy to see the business model that Google has put together. Oh, yeah. I think for marketing departments around the world, it's flipped everything upside down because marketing used to just be so um, qualitative. Well, I think that this advertisement is going to do well, and there was really no way to track the progress of how that actually worked. But with uh, Google Analytics and AdWords and AdSense and all these other things that they got, uh, it's pretty obvious uh, what the truth is and how something actually works. So uh, let's quickly talk about the Google culture. Um, and I want to uh, bring Hari into the mix because I know Hari uh, works right in that uh, area when he's there at LinkedIn. They're building surround the Google, uh, the Google Plex, if you will. And uh, he's had lunch over there, eating in some of their uh, their buildings. And just so everyone knows. Google is really well known for how they treat their employees. Unlike Amazon with the Jeff Bezos uh, model, which they don't really treat their employees all that well. Google's at the exact opposite. So let me just give you an example. So Google will do their employees laundry for them. They will have cars there. So if people want to just drive around in company cars, they can drive around in company cars. They have gourmet chefs uh, that, that, cook for people at no cost. You don't have to pay for your lunch. You don't have to pay for your dinner. Um, there's a bunch of Google perks. So, uh, Hari, can you give us some of the uh, Google perks that you've actually seen firsthand? Sure, Kristen. Uh, uh, you're right. In fact, I feel um, Google's employees are really spoiled. Um, <laughs> they probably will, they will find it hard to work anywhere else. I mean, um, the kind of perks they get is unheard of. And Google in a way is setting the bar for other companies in the valley, whether it is Facebook, LinkedIn, um, or any other company, because uh, they have to compete for the top talent. And Google has been striving uh, ever since the founding of the company to have a different uh, contrarian culture. 
In fact, uh, in the book, the author talks about how both the founders never liked working when they interned um, in any other company because they just didn't like the culture. And they wanted to kind of, you know, maintain that um, university or college dorm kind of an atmosphere in the company, even when they got big. And they have, they have been striving to do that. And uh, when I read this book, it was uh, very interesting because I have visited those cafes that the author talks about. And the author, Stephen Levy, has done a very good job in describing the culture, um, the facilities, as well as the vibe that you get uh, when you enter the Google uh, campus. As the company has grown, however, some amount of bureaucracy has crept in. And a lot of talented engineers uh, have left Google to either start their own companies or to other competitors like Facebook as they have found challenges and interesting opportunities elsewhere. Having said that, Google still is among the top destination for many smart engineers, not just um, engineers in the Valley, but around the United States and around the world. So, uh, you know, this is where I think we that we can transition into the second segment really well, because as we talk about all these perks and all these cultural things that Google has for their employees, you really have to ask yourself, is that adding real value whenever you're looking at the company? And I think one of the things that immediately strikes me is this culture and whether this culture is even sustainable um, I think today it's easily sustainable just because the company has such large margins. You know, whenever you look at the fact that they're, when you look at their top line to their bottom line, there's a 21.5% margin there, which is absolutely huge. And this is on their income statement. So every dollar that they bring in, they're effectively keeping 21 cents of it, which that's very high. I think for most businesses around the United States, if you're making 10%, you're doing really well. So for them to be bringing in over 20% is a very high margin, and that's how they can get away with sustaining this type of culture. But my concern would be as they move five, 10 years into the future, as maybe more competition comes into this into this marketplace, how are they going to sustain that competitive advantage and how are they going to keep those margins in place in order to pay for the $70 million worth of perks that they give their employees every single year? So that's a concern that I have if I was going to own this company moving forward. The one thing that I will tell you that I do like is the brand. Um, I think that a lot of people inherently just go on the internet and immediately search uh, or bring up Google uh, without any second thought entering their mind. And I think that that's a huge burden for any competitor to overcome. And I think that that's going to be definitely a strength in owning this as their brand. Um, I also think that their proprietary software is of enormous value. I think that their search results are better than other people, and that's going to be something that's going to be also very difficult to overcome. And I think that they're only going to get better as time marches on, too, and as they continue to develop and and fine-tune that software. Um, I obviously like the margins, but I just don't know how long we can sustain them. So this the the point that I have as a, as a negative is also kind of a positive in the fact that I definitely think that their margins, it's going to allow them to continue to grow over time a lot faster than, say, uh, any other type of business. So the, the one concern that I have, and this is kind of a love-hate relationship that I have with the leadership, I think that Larry Page is absolutely brilliant. I think that Sergey Brin is brilliant. My only concern is that they're kind of like this rich kid who's been spoiled from the start of their life or from their the start of their business's life, and that reality has never really set in for them to really go through some very difficult times with the, the amount of money that they bring in versus the profit that they make. And I'd be really interested to see how they'd be able to handle that if they did come across hard times and they weren't as profitable as they are and how they would manage that with their business and this culture that they've bred. I think that that's going to be a very tough transition if it ever occurs, which I think it will. Um, So then the last thing is obviously the price for me. And so whenever I look at this just generically without getting into discount cash flow models or anything like that, the PE on this company is close to 30. That's very high. That's a, that's definitely a premium to be paying um, for a company that with 20% margins. I'm not owning it right now, and I'm not buying it anytime soon. But if the market would offer an opportunity, I would be a buyer. So uh, that's kind of where I stand. Uh, Stig, let's hear your thoughts. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. 
If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Um, I don't own uh, Google and, uh, and I don't attend to, and it's really not because it's a bad stock. Um, Preston talked about the price and it's probably overvalued, but it's, it's clearly a, a very good company in terms of profitability and growth. One thing I do like about Google is that they have been able to apply all the uh, the profits that the company has uh, made the last 10, 15 years. And ha- they have been able to do that while sustaining their, their margins. And that's actually very hard to do when you're growing as much as Google has. Um, if you take a closer look at the uh, financial statements for Google, you also start to see that the company is uh, slowing down. And I wouldn't say I'm concerned about that. I would actually say it's quite natural for most company at that size. They really can't uh, keep growing uh, at that pace. Again, uh, if you compare it to a company like Amazon, uh, which we discussed um, a few episodes ago, uh, they actually have uh, less revenue than Amazon has. But again, they are making uh, very decent uh, margins. So it's just to give you something uh, to uh, to compare with in terms of, uh, of size. I think that Google has a very wide mode uh, especially if you compare it to other companies uh, in the sector. 
I think it's very hard with all the intangible assets to go in and start making uh, AdWords or start making uh, you know search. Uh, that requires such uh, heavy uh, capital expenditures that it's very, very hard to enter. With that said, um, when, you, when you think about how Google started, um, and then there's a lot in the book, there's a lot of comparison to, to Microsoft. Uh, I'm sure you would have said the same thing to Google like 15 or 20 years ago. How can you ever compete with Microsoft? You don't have the same amount of cash that they're having. You don't have the same engineers. How is that possible? And I think the Preston had a good point before. Uh, if things start to uh, turn sour, how will they respond to that? Um, when a new competitor comes, is Google really fast enough to adapt to the new changes? As Harry was saying before, uh, the company too bureaucratic at the moment uh, and will just continue to get worse as they grow. And that would probably be my uh, main concern. All right, Harry, let's hear your thoughts. Yeah, Stig, you brought up a very good point um, about um, what people said about Microsoft back in the days when Microsoft was at the top of its game and out of nowhere came Google. And I was thinking about it. It's already starting to happen to Google when Facebook started gaining prominence in the social area. And as we all know, Google has been struggling to gain a footing in the social space. But it's not in its DNA. In fact, in an interview, Larry Page described Google as an artificial intelligence company that collects massive amounts of data and then uses the data uh, through its algorithms to augment the collective brain of the humanity. That's their core value or core competence. But when they strayed out of their core competence and started chasing Facebook, which the author also talks about in the book, they were seen as an ugly duckling. And they, they came up with many products like Google Buzz, Orkut, Wave, and now Google Plus, which is known as the geekier version of Facebook. <laughs> they never actually succeeded or they never were seen as the top player in the social networking area. Having said that, after observing Google for many years, one of the things that I have understood is if I want to value Google, I should think like a venture capitalist and not like um, a value investor. Let me explain. If you try to uh, value Google, Amazon, or Facebook in a traditional sense, that is, if you're considering revenues, earnings, free cash flow, debt, margins, you're missing the big picture. These are companies with innovation in their culture, and they have less regard for revenues and profits than most other mature companies that we see in the market. In fact, in many ways, Amazon and Google have a lot of similarities in their operating philosophies. Both companies have an obsessive focus on customers and user experience. They're not afraid of risks and experimenting with new ideas and are extremely data-driven, as you mentioned, Stick. They encourage innovation from bottoms up, that is, from their employees or engineers. And at times, this might seem chaotic or disorganized or even inefficient in terms of use of capital. And both have these visionary, uh, highly ambitious leader. But if you look at these companies, they're more like a VC or a venture, venture capital uh, firm with a strong operating business generating cash, which they invest in R&D and developing their own new products. Some of them will succeed, some of them will fail. And also by acquiring new companies. But they make risky bets. In fact, when they bought YouTube, Android, or the maker of AdSense, there was no revenue in some cases and no profits at all. But after many years, they have made a huge impact on the bottom line for Google. So if I'm trying to value Google, it's very hard because I don't know what's next. Will they lose money in their many bets and a lot of spending? Or will there be a hidden black swan in a positive way. Um, you know, like there might be the next YouTube in, in their laps. So I, be, I do believe, as Christian mentioned, the law of large numbers will eventually catch up with Google at some point sooner or later. And there is also a risk that the founders can be overconfident and there can be a different sort of a group thing. You know, like um, being caught 
contrarian is a group think at google and as and the <laughs> author has the author has captured that very well you know if you talk about uh, profits if you talk about earnings you are kind of you know uh, kicked out of the room all you have to talk about is changing the world um and one of the things that um is interesting about google is even now 90% or more of their revenue comes from their ads business which is mostly search and their publisher network none of their other initiatives has made a dent in their overall revenue or business model yet so what i would like to say is if you're valuing google you have to think like peter thiel and more importantly for me uh, i have to know whether it is in the circle of my competence can i really understand how google works how it innovates and what are the probabilities if i don't i would stay away and in fact i'm going to stay away from google for now though i admire that company wow i was totally thinking that you were going to say that you own some okay go ahead stig yeah um cuz you know i think the way to look at google uh especially if you're pessimistic or if it's outside of your circle of competence which you no know, in my belief the only one i i i know that would be within their circle of competence in this matter would probably be harry <laughs> but uh <laughs> but google is definitely uh, outside my uh, circle of competences and again the way to look at that might be to way uh, to look at microsoft like 15 uh, years ago because everybody was looking at microsoft and saying it's impossible to compete with microsoft because they have the the one and only operating system uh, that everyone uses and they have microsoft office so how can we ever compete with that and what google did was they were just looking you know at the at the business completely different so they started to uh, to think about web applications Uh, and if you look something at Google Chrome today you almost have an operating system within your browser. So there was just a totally different way of competing with Microsoft where Microsoft couldn't uh, keep up. Uh, and then how you said something about social media where Google Plus is really you say it was like the geeky little brother or something to Facebook but it's definitely not working as good as Facebook or LinkedIn or some of those companies. And the thing is that Yes, it might be true that no one is able to compete with Google ever in terms of search and AdWords, but no one knows if that is where the the war is to be fought in ten or fifteen years. Um, in ten years, we will probably use something different than social media, at least in another form. And there's a good chance that Google won't be uh, be there to pick it up. And um, they got lucky, and or they were good at picking YouTube up. they didn't pick up facebook or linkedin um who's to know uh, when the next wave is coming if they can make money in that business this was really fun guys this is awesome uh, i i definitely think very highly of google um i think the business is just an amazing business to kind of look at and it's definitely different than than almost everything else out there Uh, I'm very curious to see the direction that it goes in the future. I'm also very interested to see how IBM competes with uh, Google as they go into these big data analytics uh, moving forward. IBM is a company that I have money in, and I'm assuming that Stig and Hari are, are the same. Correct? Yeah, Hari saying yes. Yeah. Stig, how about you? Do you have anything in no. I- Stig does no. not have anything in IBM. But so it's kind of interested. Um, I'm very interested to see how th- kind of things progress. Uh, as we move forward the book by uh Stephen Levy was fantastic a very good book um not as business oriented as the uh the everything store that we read about uh Jeff Bezos but if you're really kind of trying to understand how Google works maybe you have an online business or something like that i think it'd be a very useful tool for you to kind of do more research on so uh we highly recommend the book we have our show notes as usual if you want to get the show notes make sure that you sign up for those uh show notes Uh, on our mailing list, which is on our website. And before we sign off, we're going to go ahead and play our question from Derek Randell. He uh, recorded his question on AskTheInvestors.com. And if you want to get your question played, make sure you go there and uh, record your question for us. Hi, Preston and Stig. How are you? This is Derek from Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada. Thank you so much for all your work on the Investors Podcast, as well as your Buffett Books website. I've been learning a ton, so thank you very much. My question is in relation to opportunity cost. In episode 9 you reviewed the book by Charles Koch and introduced the term opportunity cost. My question is how do you actually calculate the opportunity cost between two stocks 
when future returns are unknown. Anyway, thank you very much, and I hope you can answer this question. So, Derek, this is one of my favorite topics is opportunity cost. And one of the things that we did on the Buffett's Books website is we built a sell calculator uh, for whenever you want to sell uh, stocks. We could actually call that an opportunity cost calculator if we wanted to do that as well. Um, so uh, we'll have a link to that in our show notes uh, to take you to the Buffett's Book Sell Calculator, which I should probably rename that. And I think I will after uh, I'm done recording this to sell slash opportunity cost calculator. <laughs> but um, what you're able to do with that is you're coming up with an estimate of what, what the cash flows might look like for any particular stock. So let's say that we have stock A and we think that the cash flows might be $100 over the next 10 years. Um, and then we have another stock, which we'll call stock B. And let's say that we think that the cash flows might be $200 over the next 10 years. Okay. And what we do is we discount both of those cash flows back to today's present value and we come up with what we think the market price should be. Then we compare and we look at what the market price actually is. And then that'll give you a return. Uh, so let's say with stock A, we thought the return might be 10%, and with stock B, it might be uh, 12% based off of the actual price that it's trading for. Um, and so whenever you're looking at those that difference or that delta between the two, it's a 2% difference. So what you have to ask yourself is if you own stock A or you already own stock B, what is it going to cost after you pay capital gains to get out of that particular pick and move it into the other pick? And that's opportunity cost at its best. So um, I would highly recommend that you go there, um, learn how to use that calculator. Um, it it kind of works in conjunction with our intrinsic value calculator. So you're going to really need to know how to use both. But um, if you have any other questions on this, feel free to uh, send us another message or uh, we can maybe describe it better on another show or even uh, kind of build a uh, page that describes how the two are worked together. Uh, so it's more clear for people. But this is the most important thing you can really understand in stock investing, because stock investing is all relative. It is all relative. The value of one thing is relative to the value of another thing. So you've got to really thoroughly understand opportunity cost. And this calculator, I personally use it all the time. <laughs> so you could say that I eat my own cooking. Uh, but this is something that uh, I would definitely go check out, watch the video on it and watch the video on the intrinsic value. And I think you'll have a much better idea of what it is that we are talking about. All right. So that concludes our show. We really appreciate everybody joining us. Uh, we'd like everybody to go to Hari's uh, website, bitsbusiness.com. We really appreciate him joining us. He's pretty much a staple here on the show. Anytime we read uh, a good book or uh, need to have a great discussion, we always bring Hari onto the show. So thanks for joining us, Hari. And uh, we'll see everybody next week. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.